It is a very good question, but at the same time, I think it's a pretty awful question. That is the question in verse 25. Have a look down if you want, if you can. And I think if you heard that, uh, and someone at work had, had asked the same kind of question that you see in verse 25, I think you'd be pretty excited, wouldn't you? If you heard, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus' answer, well, it's brilliant. And he loves the man, and, and he tests the man as well. He challenges, and, and the answer is surprising, and perhaps even quite frustrating for some of us. And that is a strange thing, a little bit about this parable. The parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, I guess we know it quite well. Or at least we think we do. Again, the story is simple, like the, the, the story last week of the sower. Uh, we understand the illustration, don't we? we? We all were kind of following it through. We got it when, it, when it when they were speaking about it. And we know the answer to Jesus' question in verse 36. You were all ready to answer that, weren't you? It's the Good Samaritan. He's the good neighbour. It's easy this, isn't it? And you get to verse 37 you say, right, I'm going to apply that. No problem. Absolutely. Go do likewise. No problem. You know, I may as well stop, hadn't I? (laughs) Nothing wrong with that, though, is there? What we see in verse 37. Go do likewise. You see, if the whole world were to read this story and do likewise, to be the good neighbour... To those around them, I guess the world would be a very, very different place, wouldn't it? If there were more good Samaritans in Syria right now, would they be in the news? I doubt it. But often the context of this parable is ignored. And in so doing, when you don't look at what surrounds it, I think it can be read upside down. The context, you see, is not a man... Uh, looking to be the good Samaritan. He's not seeking to be more merciful, is he, the man who asked the question. No, he's actually seeking to trap Jesus. He's a teacher of the law. That is, he's a Jewish scholar, an expert in the scriptures. And Jesus and his followers, if you just look back and cast your eyes down, read it later if you can, but the previous section, Jesus had sent out many of his followers, 72 in fact, to go and proclaim the kingdom of God to all the people and to, and to heal and to all these sort of amazing things. And in so doing, they've been proclaiming the kingdom of God without reference to the Old Testament law. And to the Jewish scholars, this was an abomination. This man is looking at Jesus to unpick him and his understanding of the Old Testament law. So we ask him this very big question. I put it on your sheets, the big question, if you like. And it's a good question, as I said, and it's a terrible question, as I said. Now, it's a good question, because I guess loads of us would love our friends to ask this same question, wouldn't we? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Can you imagine that in the pub? It'd be a surprising one, wouldn't it? It's a good question, because at least the person asking it is looking beyond today, the now. So many of us and so many of our friends are so secular that it's consumed with what the next 24 hours will give us rather than what will come. So it is a good question, but it is also a terrible question. Because, do you hear the condition in the question? He wants eternal life, but he wants it his way and on his terms. What must I? What must I do to get eternal life? It's all about him, what he wants and how he's going to get it. 
And it's a big question, it deserves, and it gets a very big answer. Jesus knows he's being tested here. And so he comes back to the expert of the law, we see there, who's looking for this answer, but with a test of his own. And you kind of got to wonder, who's going to win at this stage? So what must I do to inherit eternal life, the expert asks. And Jesus replies, well, it's just simple, what's written in the law? What is written in the law? And when Jesus tests, you must understand that his nature and his character mean that he can only test in love. He's, he's there essentially provoking the expert in law to find the answer himself. He knows it and he's, he, he knows that when he finds this answer, Jesus is going to expose the false hope in himself that he has and his own abilities to gain eternal life. What must I do to get eternal life? What can I do? That's going to be exposed. Jesus is going to do that very lovingly now. Jesus then goes further. Look at it. He says, you know, what is written in the law, do that. But how do you read it, he says. Now, he's not questioning whether he reads it on a Kindle or an iPad or, you know, kind of a Bible or a scroll. You know, it's not that kind of question. More, he's lightly helping the expert to find the only suitable answer. And there's only two answers that you can possibly do. You can either say, oh, you can read for five hours from Genesis to Deuteronomy. Do you read it that way? Or do you read it in its summary form? Deuteronomy 6, Leviticus 19, as we've got in front of us here. He answered, as he does, verse 27, look at it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbour as yourself. You see, to inherit eternal life, Jesus says, you, you keep the law. What law? The law as summarised by these two verses that are quoted here in verse 27. Those two statements, love the Lord your God, or your heart, soul, strength, mind, love your neighbour as yourself. As I said, unbeknownst to the expert of the law, he's being exposed. Because the law does that. It condemns, as Paul says in the book of Romans, even these two summary statements expose him as they, as they do all of us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Have you done that this week? No, we haven't. Archbishop William Temple, a very famous uh, archbishop in the, in the Church of England, once famously said this in relation to um, this, um, this uh, uh, summary of the law. He said, religion is what you do with your solitude. That is, when you are quiet, uh, when you have those moments in your life, when you go for a walk and you're on your own, just, and your mind can just wander... What do you think about? What, do you, what does your mind and your heart focus toward in your solitude? What dominates your mind and your heart essentially? Oh, it could be a relationship or a lack of relationship. You know, it could be your children, your, your career, where you're heading in your career. You know, it, it, it could be the possession that you long for. Maybe it has, whatever it may be. What do you consider in your solitude? The quiet moment of your life. Well, if it is not God, then you realise that you have fallen short of this standard in the law. Then, if you like, what your heart and mind focus towards, if you like, is your religion, William Temple was saying. That is the thing that dominates your heart. You see, none of us love God with the entirety of ourselves, do we? 
Likewise, he, tells, he goes on in the summary here. Love your neighbour. The scope of this requirement, I think we find... We can't think, yeah, I like, I like people around me. That's absolutely fine. But put it, put it this way. It would be like the, uh, you know, we've got the Olympics coming up. The 100-metre final, the, the premier event of the whole Olympics. You know, Usain Bolt and all those kind of characters. We don't know the rest, do we? I, don't, I haven't got a clue who else is running it. But Usain Bolt is. But, you know, it would be like, let's say Usain Bolt getting silver. And being as pleased for the person who won gold as he would have been pleased, as pleased for himself if he had, if he had won gold. And the difference between silver and gold isn't just the colour of the medal. Of course, it's, it's the prestige of the fastest man in the world and all that kind of thing. But it also, as you saw in the press this week, I don't know if you talk, spot it, the difference between silver and gold in that one race is $50 million revenue, they think. It is being as pleased for the person who wins gold as you would have been pleased if you had won gold. That is what loving your neighbour looks like. See, this summary of the law exposes us all in that sense, doesn't it? I love the way it exposes others as well. You think about your agnostic kind of atheistic friends. You know, they may love others and love themselves, but they, they do so with no, they live with no reference to God, do they? They might, they might feel that they can fulfil one element of this summary of the law, but they can't fill the other. And similarly with those, you know, perhaps more religious types who, who enjoy going to church and might have a, a kind of a nominal faith, as you might describe it. Yeah, they, they might say they love God to some degree, but that love of God has borne no, no kind of impact into their lives. Therefore, they, they don't have the ability to love others. They, they can't love their neighbour. They fall down on one or, one or other of the elements of this summary. But that is true for all of us, isn't it? You see, this big initial question leads the expert of the law to... It's, it's exposed him and all of us to, to our inadequacies to gain eternal life through keeping the law. It exposes us to that impossible standard. Then we get to our second point. The impossible standard. Jesus points this out in verse 28. You've answered correctly, Jesus. He says, do this and you'll live. Do it. But it's an impossible thing. It's an impossible standard. Do this and you will live. The expert in law is correct. But it's too much for him. And essentially, that, what he's saying, Jesus said, do this. It's a present continuous. He's saying, do this and keep on doing this forever and a day. Do this perfectly, you, in, you will inherit eternal life. What the implicit message is, if you do not, you will not. And therefore you need help. If you want eternal life, you need help. You need a saviour. Relationship with God, with God is what we've been made for, but the expert is confused. Even though his answer is correct... He still thinks that eternal relationship with God, the thing that he's been made for, the thing that he so longs for, eternal life with God, he thinks still in some way that he can earn that as he lives his life before God. But we can't reach this impossible standard on our own. We cannot do this and live, live eternally. So this expert does what most of us do in our minds, I think every day, and Jesus spots it so clearly. He wants to justify himself, verse 29. Have you seen that? I think, I think what he's doing is saying, yeah, maybe, I, maybe I'm not perfect, but I do this, and I do that. And I'm a little better than them, and I'm not quite so good as them. But, but put that package together, that's not a bad package, is it? 
surely God will want me with him for eternity. Verse 29, but he wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, who's my neighbour? How far do I have to go with this? Really, does it stretch? Does it go that far? Who's my neighbour? It's a brilliant question. Um, And the expert wanted to justify his his limited love of God, but but of his neighbour too. But now Jesus is going to blow his world apart with his parable. He paints a picture I use painting language just for the sake of Al here, but then, you know, the, the painter amongst us. He's essentially painting this beautiful, massive picture that will humble us all, especially this expert in the law. Because it, why? Because the picture extends to all. The big question about eternal life is taking this expert to his own law, the thing that he is an expert on, and he attempts to justify his inadequacy before God, but now... It is going to be exposed. The big question exposes an impossible standard for us all. But it leads to, thirdly, the perfect example. He asks, who's my neighbour? And what follows, as we've said already, is probably the best known parable of all. Let's just go through it very briefly. You know it. A nondescript man is lying on a road from Jericho. And it's very possible that this would have happened. It's a very normal thing to have happened on that road. It was a notorious road for bandits to come and to rob people. And he's taken by robbers, this man. He's beaten and he's stripped and he's left half dead, verse 30. You can see it there. And this is where the the expert of law, his worldview, his understanding of the people around him and of God and and his surroundings, is going to be absolutely blown apart. Look at it, verse 31. A priest. A priest happened to be walking by, going down the road, that same road. Happened to be, it's a lovely little turn of phrase, as if by chance, essentially. And culturally, the first readers of this, there'll be a sense of relief at this point. A priest. Oh, that's a story over. Brilliant. All sorted. Help is now on its way. It would be like telling the story today, you know, and there's someone on a road and it's all, he's beaten in and so on. And here comes an aid worker who's trained as a paramedic. You know, it's, it's as good as that. You know, they think everything is going to be sorted. Someone who's devoted their lives to the care of the marginalized and, and so on and the poor. But, verse 30, 31 again, when he saw the man, He passed by on the other side. Sharp inhalation of breath at that point as the crowd hear the story. So too, verse 32, a a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. You see, the expectation of the first listeners of this story would have have been relief to start with. But then, (gasps) utter shock. But don't be too hard on the priest and the Levite. If you are in your mind right now, as I said, the Jericho Road was a, was a very, very dangerous place. It was, it was strewn with kind of rocks and little caves which bandits and robbers could very easily hide in and spring out on people and, and rob them and beat them in and so on. And this man on the road probably appeared near dead. And therefore, to stop and to tend to such a man would have been risking your own life. The robbers, of course, may still be around, waiting for someone to stop. 
and then get them too. They need, don't they? The priest and the Levite, they, they must keep going. That is the only kind of rational and reasonable thing to do. You imagine you're pushing your little child along in the pushchair and uh, you don't want to meet, you know, miss your meeting at work. You've got your, your best suit on and your lovely leather shoes. And, and oh, my goodness, my granny gave me this tie. I couldn't possibly go near someone with blood on. It, the priest and the Levite do exactly as just, just as most of us would. What they do is reasonable and what they do is rational. But the good Samaritan, look at him, verse 33. A Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Just in, in, in what he does in the next three verses, he risks his life. No doubt he, he destroyed all of his plans. I mean, his iPhone was probably popping up all sorts of messages saying he needs to be here and here and here. Um, you know, all his schedule went to, to pop there. And he got his hands dirty. See, so many of us are willing, aren't we, to just throw a bit of cash and run. But the good Samaritan was sacrificial with his time, his life, and his money. With the pity he has for the man, he does, well, you can listen down, there's six or more things, you can divide them up, but in verses 34 and verse 35, essentially he's doing as the commandment requires, isn't he? He is loving his neighbour. But I don't think we get the shock of this verse, though, very well. I'm not sure if I can even find a contemporary example. Perhaps the good Al-Qaeda operative may work. I'm not sure. Samaritans, you see, were utterly hated. In John chapter 8, when Jesus was described by the Jews... They use two terms in, I think it's chapter 8, verse 48. And they're synonymous within the way that they place them. That is, demon-possessed. And they call Jesus a Samaritan. That's how the Jews viewed the Samaritans. They're the utter lowest of the low. Despised. In fact, the Jews routinely, when they prayed and gathered as as families, they used to actually pray um, that God would bless them and provide for them. And not allow any Samaritans into the kingdom of God and pollute the place. They would actually articulate that in their family prayers. So Jesus asked the expert of the law, who clearly would have hated a Samaritan. Which of these do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? It's actually saying, expert in the law. You, you know what you're talking about here. Um, which of these three do you think did what your law requires. The priest, who you so revere. The Levite, oh, you know, the man who would be so noble in society, such a the linchpin who went to the right type of school. Verse 37, the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. He can't even say Samaritan. He can't even say the word. That's how much they hated him. And did you notice that Jesus never answered the question of verse 29, who is my neighbour? Instead, Jesus asked the question, which one is fulfilling the law? Which one is the the good neighbour? The one who showed mercy. 
See, the Samaritan does everything. Nothing is missed out in those three verses, verse 33 35. He's the perfect example of mercy. And that is where sometimes we get this parable just so wrong. Because that can never be you and me. When you read any story, you you want to put yourself in the story, don't you? That's the beauty of a story. Are you Tigger or are you Eel? You know, where are you? The Samaritan in this parable? Well, certainly Jesus, doesn't he, at the end of verse 37. He wants you to be that to some degree. The command of verse 37 makes that clear. You want to be something like the Samaritan. Go do likewise. But who should you most keenly associate yourself with in this parable? And we look at the Samaritan, we should rightly think, where, we can, where can we possibly find that kind of love from within ourselves? Because it's, it's such a perfect and complete example of, of mercy and love. The expectation is too high for us here, isn't it? I wonder whether the person we should most keenly associate ourselves with, within this parable, is actually the beaten, half-dead man on the road. See, if you want to see how you stack up spiritually before God, if you want to see how in not loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and not loving your neighbour as yourself, How that makes you look before God. Look at the man on the road. See, this parable was never told to inspire people to change the world through acts of mercy. That is essentially reading the parable backwards. It was told so that people would change their hearts. That they would see that they have absolutely nothing before God. That they are utterly dependent on his mercy and his love and his pity and his sacrifice. And seeing their need and seeing the, the inadequacy, uh, their inadequacy in God's love and intervention in their lives. Then they would, with changed hearts, respond and try and change the world. See, if you read this parable backwards, that is, you just want to do some good stuff, some nice little deeds to kind of merit yourself before God. In the same way that the expert of the law wanted to justify himself before God. Essentially, the expert is trying to limit his neighborhood, isn't it? He's trying to say, I don't don't want to go too far. Tell me how far I need to go. And in so doing, Jesus is, is provoking that and saying... Uh, No, you need to actually have a heart and a life that is neighbourly. Not just to try and limit your neighbourhood. You need a life, a heart that is neighbourly. The expert of law wanted to do things, loving things that would gain him eternal life. And Jesus says, there is a love. There's a love that you cannot do. A love that you need to ask for. This parable is about moral duty. Of course it is. It's about an ethical kind of life. Yes, it is at its end point. But first and foremost, it is about an ethical and moral bankruptcy that we all have before God because we do not love him with all our heart, soul, mind and strength and we do not love our neighbour as ourselves. We've all, haven't we, fallen short of that standard. 
that God requires for us to enter into his eternal kingdom. And we need to trust the only, the only good Samaritan. The great good Samaritan, if you like. The Lord Jesus Christ. Who've crossed, you know, let's look at the parallels here. I don't want to allegorise to kind of crazy levels, but, you know, he did cross a road. A much bigger road from heaven to earth. And came as a child. Lowering himself. And he poured out everything. Sacrificing his life in a place on a cross. Taking the punishment that you and I deserve for the way that we have not loved God with all our heart, mind, soul, strength. As a good Samaritan did, Jesus offers us new life with him. And so as you trust him, you become, if you like, a good Samaritan. Not the good Samaritan. You become a good Samaritan. Willing to sacrifice yourself in service of the one who has saved you. And willing to make unusual sacrifices. Displaying a love that is willing to lose. For the sake of another. Willing to lose time. Willing to lose comfort. Willing to lose material possessions. Maybe even the safety of yourself. And your children. To be distinct from a world that loves to indulge itself. Beware of the life that just goes from indulgence to indulgence to indulgence. The Good Samaritan didn't just throw cash at a man. He gave himself. And he risked himself. And his reputation. Lastly, the challenging command. We have to get this the right way around. It finishes here. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Do likewise with the heart that has been transformed by Christ and what he's done on the cross. You see, when someone becomes a Christian, they trust in Christ and they realise that they were spiritually dead on a treacherous road. And the good Samaritan, that is Christ, loves them, cares for them, pours himself out for them and transforms them into a, to have a new life for the spirit of God in their hearts. Go do likewise. You can and you will if you are filled with God's spirit because you trusted in Christ. You will want to obey this command. And the elders and I of this church, we need to lead you in ways in which you can do that for the people of Illsford and the people around you. Forgive us if we have not done that. But we must always have the priority teaching people of Illsford and those around us about our moral bankruptcy first before God. We must love our neighbour, we must show mercy, and what an impact that will have if we do that. Julian the Apostate, one of the Roman emperors in the 3rd century, who was uh, trying to stamp out Christianity, he persecuted Christians, killed them in their thousands. He was seeing the church grow, and he became very, very upset about the growth of the church. And so what he did is he wrote to a friend, I I get his name, it's very close, but it's Arsacius. So I need to say that very accurately. Um, And he wrote to his friend and he said this. Nothing has contributed more to the superstition of Christians. He thinks it's a superstition. Than the charity to strangers. While the impious Galileans, the Christians which he knew. Provide not only for their poor. But also for ours too. This letter, it's a short letter. But it's an observation of of, of his to his friends. Of the natural generosity of those who've been saved by Christ. And the the generosity they want to pour out on those around them. 
And it was the biggest factor of the growth of the young church. The Jews, you see, not, they just took care of their own. The Romans, they just took care of their own. The Greeks took care of their own. The Christians, they took care of everyone. There's a lovely little phrase in this letter. And it just says, they're promiscuous with their generosity. People notice that. And it has an impact. It was radical because it was so broad in its dimension. And I hope you have been stirred, as every Christian ought to be, to want to show mercy in practical and loving ways. Because it will make a difference. Because you have been shown mercy in Christ first and foremost. You will want to show mercy in the way that you proclaim Christ, but in the way that you show mercy to everyone around you. It will mean numerous sacrifices, but also numerous opportunities for the gospel too. I finish with this very briefly. Many of you will know uh, Robert Murray McShane, who was a famous Scottish preacher, died very young, died at the age of 28. In 1843, he ended one sermon like this. Put it this way, I use these words because I don't dare say them myself. I fear there are some Christians among you to whom Christ cannot say, well done, good and faithful servant. Your haughty dwellings arises Sorry, your haughty dwelling arises amidst thousands that have scarce a fire to warm themselves and have but little clothing to keep out the biting frost. You heave a sigh, perhaps at a distance, but you do not visit them. Ah, my friends, I'm not concerned for the poor, but more for you. I don't know what Christ will say to you on a great day. You seem to be Christians, yet you don't care for the poor. What a change will pass upon you as you enter the gates of heaven. You will be saved, but that will be all. There will be no abundant entrance for you. He who soweth sparingly reaps sparingly, and I fear they may be many hearing me now. Sorry, I fear they may be hearing me that now know they are not Christians because they do not love to give. To give largely and liberally, not grudging at all, requires a new heart. An old heart would rather depart with its lifeblood than its money. So friends, enjoy your money. Make the most of it. Give none away. For I can tell you, you will be beggars throughout eternity. Pretty sobering words, aren't they? McShane is no socialist. He was an aristocratic, incredibly wealthy, blue, conservative man. Yet he had a new heart. He trusted in the good Samaritan, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he wanted to do likewise. See, before you can be a neighbour, you need a neighbour. And before you can be a good Samaritan, you have to trust Jesus as the good Samaritan. And then, go do likewise. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, do pray that you would forgive us when we have essentially flipped this um, parable uh, the wrong way round, in, in a sense, try to do things in order to justify ourselves before you. They, they're good things and they're right things to show mercy to the world around us. But that cannot justify us before you.
We are that man beaten on that road, helpless. We have nothing to offer you. Yet you have given your son the good Samaritan. And poured, he has poured out himself for us, sacrificed his life for us, so that we might live a life that is pleasing to you and try to emulate just a fraction of his mercy that he has poured out on us. Lord, in, in the order that is, that is meant within this parable, may we share the mercy of the Good Samaritan first, but never, never be accused of not being able to show the practical, caring mercy that we need to show and Jesus commands us to show in the last verse of this parable. Heavenly Father, please challenge us today where we have ignored perhaps that the need to go out and show mercy to those around us. Please rebuke us where we need to be. And please help us to work together that we might show mercy to the community around us. Amen. Well, we come now then to sing our very last...